Yes, I'm gonna, we're going to switch right to the uh, Tabletta Community College presentation. Uh, Dr. Edna Bear-Kovani is here, um, uh, and I'll let her introduce a couple of folks with her, including her, her uh, Real Estate Foundation Chair, uh, Burl Saunders. But um, the, the, the title of her presentation is a, a transformative moment for TCC in the city of Norfolk, and I would, I would submit that it's another transformative moment for TCC in the city of Norfolk, and, the, and she's going to start to draw the parallels for what's happening now to what um, what you all and TCC did years ago with uh, Grammy Street and, and, and the way that they're going to be a catalyst uh, similarly. Uh, I, I think it's also important to take a moment and acknowledge that Dr. Kovani is uh, retiring on uh, at the end of this month and uh, has been a... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but is, was, is the fifth president of TCC and has been in that role since uh, 2012 and has, has frankly been a, a good friend to, uh, to Norfolk uh, and to the region and uh, we value that relationship and um, uh, we will miss you uh, immensely but uh, are, are glad that you're here tonight and I'll turn it over to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Yeah, if we have some handouts and thank okay. you Mr. Mayor for giving us the opportunity to talk to you and update you on our exciting partnership, additional partnership with the city of Norfolk. Um, I was inspired to make these comments based on a, on a speech I gave a couple months ago to somebody and it said, what would Hampton Roads look like without TCC? And so this is kind of a similar theme here. What would Norfolk look like without T TCC in Midtown? So again, thank you for the opportunity to talk with you this evening. I was not here in the days when Granby Street was, well, let's just say it was not the destination it is today. I have heard stories, sir. Long-time long downtown regulars tell me they did not walk down the street after dark. There were shuttered stores and seedy theaters, and the names that once anchored downtown Norfolk, Hofheimer's, Ames and Brownlee, Smith and Welton, Rice's Nachman were long gone or soon to be. Flash forward to the early 90s, a downtown Norfolk campus of Tidewater Community College was always part of the state systems master plan, and thanks to a substantial contribution from the city of Norfolk and the support of then Speaker of the House, Tom Moss, startup funds were allocated by the General Assembly. In 1993, construction began. We gave new life to the old Smith and Welton department store. Smith and Welton is now the Martin Building, which houses our library. And to honor the Norfolk legacy of Smith and Welton in 1997, the college hosted a Smith and Welton tea room lunch, complete with pecan cheese and white meat chicken salad sandwiches. Maybe somebody was here and participated in that even. Woolworths now houses our culinary program, turning out dozens of graduates each year with just two small kitchens. Restaurants in Hampton Roads might have more trouble finding chefs if it hadn't been for TCC. New buildings include a science and student services center named for longtime city council man, Dr. Mason Andrews, another TCC champion. The Norfolk Campus Student Center was completed in 2011. The campus brings people downtown, faculty, staff, and 11,000 students a year who shop in the stores and eat in the restaurants. And they go to the Gene and George Roper Performing Roper, uh, Arts Center, the Lowe's Theater, the former vaudeville palace turned blue movie house, became a center for theater and dance and it is now the home of our new Associate of Fine Arts in Music. Without TCC and the generosity of Jean and George Roper, it might not have reached its potential. If TCC had not been here to conceive and build the Norfolk campus, could downtown revitalization have been delayed? Would MacArthur Center, itself a bold bet on the future of downtown, have gotten off to so strong a start? It is fair to say that TCC brought new energy to downtown Norfolk, and we are about to see history repeat itself. We are witnessing another transformative moment for TCC and the city of Norfolk. The Neon District is the talk of the town and all of Hampton Roads. With its central location, new restaurants, theaters, studios, and extensive public murals, the Neon District is the up-and-coming place to be in downtown Norfolk. With your support, 
and that of the Patricia and Douglas Perry Foundation, TCC is lighting up the Neon District with an exciting, transformative project that will expand TCC's one-of-a-kind visual arts education program, train the next generation of chefs with a more comprehensive culinary arts program, and inaugurate a new program in restaurant management, and all while creating a vibrant and inviting dinner and arts destination to be enjoyed by students, residents, and visitors alike. You have a handout listing the potential impact of the center. We are projecting 2,000 students a year will use the new facilities, plus staff and faculty. You will see a huge increase in foot traffic in the district from them, as well as visitors and tourists. The number of visual arts students will increase 60%, with new programs planned in jewelry, fiber art, and papermaking. We are planning vibrant new partnerships with ODU, NSU, the Chrysler Museum, Perry Glass Studio, and other arts organizations, such as the Virginia Arts Festival. We will triple the size of our culinary program, thanks to the expansion from two kitchens currently to five. New programs will include baking and pastry and food science. We will have an incubator for startup culinary businesses, hold competitions, offer public cooking classes, and expand workforce training options for Norfolk residents. Not to mention a student-run restaurant bringing a new dining destination to the Neon District. The restaurant management program will have a capacity of 150 students a year, and there is in the works a dual enrollment program with Norfolk Public Schools in restaurant management, and the first courses will be offered this fall. We are extremely grateful to Pat and Doug Perry for their support of the project. In addition to being the lead donors to the new facility, the Perrys have also gifted the Glasswheel Studio to the college. The Glasswheel Studio will house an art gallery, printmaking and sculpture, as well as the new jewelry, fiber art, and papermaking programs. And the studio will be the site for receptions to launch visiting artist experiences and many other collaborative venues with local arts organizations. Mayor Alexander, I know you share my enthusiasm for this project. Again, our new visual arts culinary hospitality management center will become a reality thanks to another substantial contribution from the city of Norfolk, the site of the Greyhound Station. TCC will truly be lighting up the Neon District, serving as an anchor and creating a new downtown destination. Once again, we are injecting new energy into downtown in Norfolk. I would like to introduce Burrell Saunders, who is the chair of our Real Estate Foundation. Burrell Saunders of Saunders and Krauss uh, is here to tell you more about the project. Good evening. Good evening. Um, what an exciting time for Norfolk again. We've, the great renaissance of the city has really been uh, a joy to be a part of and to see this happening. And this now reaches and starts to bind together the cultural arts on the north side of Brambleton and the, to the south side of Brambleton as Granby Street progresses up to the north. Uh, this particular building will be uh, 45,000 square feet, two floors, it'll be very high floor to floor, it'll be approximately 18 foot on each one in order to accommodate um, the ovens for the uh, glass studios and for the pottery and the other arts on the first floor. and the second, and then the second floor is the same. As Dr. Calavani uh, just uh, pointed out, this is a marriage of two or three, really, uh, um, a hospitality and cult, uh, culinary arts with the, um, um, with the uh, um, visual arts, excuse me, yeah. So, which is, which is very unique in the industry. This is a, for college, a university to have a college to have these two bound together uh, in one place and they can inform each other on uh, inspiring the students and the people in it. So as we place this building on the site, it, it's between Granby and Monticello, so it opens up both ways and really starts to address uh, three sides of, of the streetscape in downtown Norfolk. You can see here, uh, this is uh, looking at it from the Brambleton side 
And one of the things we're doing on this, uh, on this side of the building is to open it up with glass so the art studios are visible to people coming by the uh, building. There will be a sculpture garden to the east side of the building facing towards uh, Norfolk Scope in that intersection. And on the west side of the building uh, to the, you can see on the um, northern part of Brambleton, there will be an outdoor cafe where the students can actually uh, have experience with serving customers and, and benefiting them. Uh, just kind of a side note, what one of the things we're doing is we have a, a, build, a building like this really takes a lot of service. There's a lot of food coming in and out, a lot of other uh, goods coming in for the uh, arts uh, studios. So we have a, an alleyway that runs uh, mid-block that allows semis to get in there, be hidden from uh, the pedestrians. And really, we want to celebrate the pedestrian experience. So you might notice here, as you start up here on this right side in Brambleton, there's sculpture gardens. It comes back around where there can be outdoor displays, uh, landscaping, along with the, to really create a, a, a wonderful uh, pedestrian experience. Then we come to the neon uh, um, element that has been put up uh, at the entrance of Granby and wraps back around up uh, Granby with, uh, with the outdoor cafe facing back towards the connectivity to the glass wheel and the Chrysler Museum. Um, the symbolism of the building is kind of these two um, um, elements coming together in a, in a symbiotic relationship around a, a uh, atrium where mm -hmm. the students, and it was really interesting, we were sitting and talking with Chef Don the other day, and the excitement of what the art students can have in terms of presentation on the culinary school and the culinary school's uh, impact on on the uh, arts program. So this is going to be a really unique place in the in the in the U.S. Really, it's a really special kind of uh, integration of these two disciplines of education. Uh, these these are some additional views uh, that you can see of the building from different angles. Uh, well, let me say uh, the one last thing I will say is the Perrys have been very gracious uh, in doing the, the doing the glass wheel is already. Uh, had a lot of impact on the arts. I know that we, with the Arts Festival, we've used it, and it's been a great place for that, and, and to also celebrate the artists in the area. And uh, the, the fact that they're uh, actually helping to get this going is unbelievable. So thank you. All right, thank you all very much. <laughs> so maybe you've got item PH2 on the agenda tonight that's obviously that allows us to transfer the Greyhound Station to make all this happen, so we thought it made sense that we really haven't talked about this publicly much since the state of the city. Thank you, Edna. Thank you, your foundation, your board. Um, we, you know, best wishes to you, uh, you. for what you. Uh, thank you for what you've done here in the city, but more importantly, what you've done in the region. Uh, you really have uh, transformed uh, the city of Norfolk and the region. You've educated so many students, and they're doing very well. And we wish you the very best. Any questions for Edna before she leaves, or any comments anyone would like to make? I'm just excited about it. Great. I am. As an alumni of TCC, yes. I'm excited about it. And um, the only thing that I would say, um, one of my concerns is just, um, you know, student loan debt is really one of the issues, major issues that we have. And so I'm just hopeful that um, you all are able to work with the potential students, getting those possible entry-level jobs or, you know, Absolutely. helping them to gain better employment because of their affiliation right. and training with TCC so that their student loans it's a payment, but it's not a burden and to them. the life Right, right. I'm happy to know that three out of five TCC graduates graduate without a penny of debt. Mr. Smeagol, and I, I would say I know I've heard from our restaurant owners in Norfolk about the need for staff mm -hmm. um, that are trained um, in high quality. So this is really great addition. I know we already have some programming, but this is going to be a, a much-needed addition. And I was really excited to hear about the dual enrollment opportunities with Norfolk Public Schools. In fact, um, before the big budget cuts came from the state, there was uh, dual enrollment programs at most of our high schools with TCC. Uh, but those programs were cut with budget cuts um, that came from the state. And so it would be great to start using this um, as a potential uh, increase in conversation I know maybe he's not here, but uh, with the lifelong learning, that there's opportunities, particularly, I think a lot of you probably saw the um, article about the 15-year-old that graduated from high school um, and 
there would have been more opportunities for him to take college level in high school had we had those continued dual enrollment. So I appreciate bringing that back, and I'm hoping that we can um, spark some more conversations with TCC about getting those back into our high schools. And then there is, I think there was some reduction in tuition, but North Public Schools was paying for that, but let's continue that so that they'll stay as students and finish yeah. through, I, which would be great. Perfect yes. points. Um, so two things are going on at TCC. Number one is we have another major donor who is going to be investing in this new facility. Half of his money will go towards uh, stipends to encourage um, young people to get into the pipeline for this. And then secondly, as part of our major gifts campaign, we're raising $2 million in scholarship endowment for dual enrollment. Right. So that Thank hopefully you. every uh, financially family in, in the entire service region of TCC can access a dual enrollment program if their schools do not pay for it. Yeah. Okay, Dr. Wibbley and Mrs. Graves. So I was lucky enough to start on the um, TCC board back in the 90s with Larry Whitworth mm -hmm. and started at that time the Women's um, Center's Advisory Board yeah. and has TCC has just played such a terrific role in job um, placement and training for um, many of our returning citizens, particularly women, and I really have always appreciated the fact that it's done so much. And now with the Lifelong Learning Commission, mm -hmm. I mean, not here, but um, we've been working through our goals and we are establishing who's going to be the lead point man for most of our goals. And frankly, TCC is at least half of the time um, oh. the point person on that. So we recognize that our lifelong learning is, is all part of this. And now with the career and technical program, yes. same thing. That, exactly. uh, TCC is going to be our partner with that high school, too. Wonderful. So, yeah, I'm sorry you're not going to be uh, part of that as we but continue, but I've appreciated your helping us get started. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. This is great. Um, I just want to ask. A lot of the issues I think that the, some of the downtown uh, restaurants are experiencing, from what I've heard, is not necessarily the technical skill, but it's like the soft skill. Mm -hmm. So are you all going to be doing anything to um, work with the students on, you know, you have to show up on time to work yes. every yeah. day? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those soft skill pieces, sure. do you all do? Yeah. We, we do both in the academic curriculum as well as with our workforce training. So we work very closely with Opportunity Inc. to recruit um, potential trainees into the workforce programs. And that is part of their assessment and part of their coaching to make sure that they attend their classes on time, <coughs> they come properly dressed, and have an attitude that will be appreciated when they go into the world, world of work. Thanks. And one of the goals of the Lifelong Learning Commission. <laughs> so, yes. Speaking to the choir. Right. They put your age in the paper. I'm not going to say it again, but you look great. All right, okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you all. All right, Mary, we're going to do two uh, two quick pop-ups. Got to get back back on, on schedule. Lane Newcomb's going to come up and do the first one, which is related to item PH5, which is a little bit of an unusual item in that it's going to require a zoning text amendment and a conditional use permit from me for tonight. Uh, to actually um, uh, allow for a what we're calling a grown-ups arcade in a uh, new restaurant on uh, Clodion. Right. Yes, PH5 is a text amendment in the pedestrian commercial overlay district for 21st Street. Right now you can have a commercial recreation center, which is known the term for game room. You can have a restaurant in most of the commercial districts of the city. 21st Street Collie, when we created the PCO 20 years ago, they were concerned about the image of a game room at the time, so it wasn't allowed. A new user has come into the area and asked that the uh, Planning Commission process this text amendment so that they could go into uh, location at uh, on, 20, uh, on Colonial Avenue between 21st and 22nd. Um, essentially, the performance standards that are built into it are up on the board. You must be 18 or older to enter the premises. If you're under 18, you have to be in uh, custody with a guardian. Um, the guests under 21 must leave by 9. The intention there is not to have uh, a game room as much as a component for a restaurant. In addition to the uh, current standards, um, we have a condition that none of the video games provided shall allow a payout in any form or encourage or promote gambling in any way. 
This is the site. Um, it's uh, the the old Belmont restaurant located as I said on the corner of 22nd and Colonial. Uh, it's a two-story go in, go up. The uh, the Belmont was never able to really make good use of the second floor. The property owner is sprinkling the entire building so that uh, now they will be able to use the second floor. It's a new venture. Uh, you have three items before you. Text amendment to allow this to happen. A conditional use permit for a restaurant operating after 11, which is one of the newer terms we've introduced in the ordinance. And the third one is to allow a commercial rec center in cooperation with all of that. This is the hours that the Belmont operated till two. They're both pretty much the same. This one starts an hour earlier. Uh, you'll note the activity of entertainment that's not there anymore. We're going to the recreation center. Um, seating is somewhat in the same capacity, a bit more people uh, in the building, basically sitting around and working on the games as opposed to uh, at tables. Um, We have uh, done that on a lot of occasions. We do it mostly. But it, when I say do we, we ask you as an operator, what do you want to have? Well, I'd like to have a three-member band. So it goes in as a three-member band. If you want a five-member, we put five in. We've never had a magic number. But we do ask you to tell us what types of entertainment you want to put in there. Poetry readings. That's the best. Well, <laughs> The Planning Commission recommended approval of the request by 7-0, and it came to us um, one more with uh, recommendations from the Ghent Business Association and the Ghent Neighborhood League. It's a little bit of an unusual item, so I just wanted y'all to uh, you and the public to understand what we're doing tonight with these three items. Um, the next pop-up is uh, a fun one. Uh, Norm McDonald is our, um, you know, you all know we have not only the, the, the NEL program, but within the NEL program, municipal interns, a dozen uh, municipal interns, and Nora is actually working in the, the city manager's office and a uh, 2017 graduate of the University of Virginia and um, got her bachelor's degree in economics and is, and is going after a master's in public policy at the uh, Baton School of so, so we're really lucky to have her this this summer, and, and um, there's a chance to give her some exposure to you all. We got a lot of positive feedback recently about improvements along you know, over in Poplar Hall, some of the benches and things that have been popped up, and it made us realize um, that we've got eight different programs. We're talking with the Winter and the team uh, this uh, Monday morning about uh, some of the positive things that are happening uh, in some of these neighborhoods. I just want to give you a, a quick three minutes on some of the placemaking that's happening uh, around Norfolk right now. So, Nora, welcome. Thank you, Mr. Smith. Good evening, Mr. Mayor, Council Members, and Mr. Manager. Um, as Mr. Smith said, my name is Norm McDonald, um, and I'm interning in the City Manager's Office this summer. Yesterday, I was tasked with preparing a presentation for Mr. Benda for this evening. But as Norfolk is a city of opportunity, I was given the chance to present to you this evening as well. Driving around Norfolk, I've seen many big projects taking place. Two weeks ago, I had the privilege of attending the Jordan Newberry Library Grand Opening, listening to Councilman Graves speak about the history of the library and what it meant to her as a little girl made me more excited than I already was to be interning in this city. While new libraries like Jordan Newby and Slover are great additions to Norfolk, tonight I would like to highlight a few of the seemingly smaller projects taking place, but that have a big impact in the neighborhoods they surround. Throughout the neighborhoods of Norfolk, playgrounds are being revamped. At Munson Park, the children of Park Place helped design the playground of their dreams by voting and drawing pictures. The final designs, as you see on the slide, include a rope space and tree theme. The playground has something for all children, including a cozy cocoon so those with disabilities can enjoy the playground without being overwhelmed by the laughter of other children also playing. The next addition to the park will be a piece of art that represents the people of Park Place. This fall, the Digstown playground will be refreshed as well. Digstown will become a place for residents of all ages with basketball courts and a fitness equipment place for adults. The new design makes Digstown a safe space for every member of the community to enjoy. The playground revamps across Norfolk transform the local communities by providing safe, fun places designed by neighborhood kids themselves with something for everyone. In addition to the park playgrounds, a park trolley stop has also been redesigned. At the corner of 35th and Granby Street, 
is the revitalized Lafayette trolley stop. Dating back to the 1900s, the stop has become avoided over the years. Today, though, the trolley stop is a place to be celebrated with new benches, vegetation, and streetlights, as well as pace bikes, and a fresh coat of vintage colored paint to pay tribute to its history. As a wannabe gardener and lover of fresh veggies, one of my favorite initiatives to learn about was the Church Street Garden Project initiated by Teens with a Purpose. Central to three communities, the residents have been key in growing the garden. An ongoing initiative, the garden will continue to flourish, giving the communities access to a farmer's market, recreation area, outdoor classrooms, and place to appreciate local art and history. Requested by the community, the Church Street Garden Project creates a safe, creative community space. As Norfolk becomes increasingly multimodal, the city is focused on improving both the big and small ways to get around. Poplar Hall Drive, as Mr. Smith mentioned, was once just a big wide road with a median but no sidewalks. It was suggested that a walking path be built on the median to make the road pedestrian friendly. Today, the median includes a half mile long handicap accessible winding trail through the trees. The neighborhood voted on the number of benches they would like to include, and now there are three spread throughout. Completed just this spring, the path is already a huge hit with the neighbors who like to use it to exercise and walk their dogs. Another new notable path is the Edible Trail in Chelsea. In partnership with the Elizabeth Trail Foundation, the city donated edible trees to be planted along the path. The Edible Trail brings the urban community closer to nature as trail users are able to see how fruits and vegetables grow in their own backyard, and if they're lucky, sample a piece of the fruit. The city isn't going to stop making a difference in neighborhoods anytime soon, though. In July, the Larry Moore Lawn Pool will be donated to the city. The city will redevelop the land into a park, including a food orchard and community garden. During a time when the food retail infrastructure in Norfolk is changing, the new garden area, as well as the Church Street Garden and Edible Trail, will give the community a place to grow their own food and increase access to fresh and local produce. Farm to table is great, but backyard to table is even better. Finally, as the neighborhoods of Norfolk, Norfolk flourish through these smaller actions, it's important to intrigue visitors to stop at local businesses and attractions. In Riverview, a new sign has been put up, letting passerbyers know the neighborhood is open for business. A new sign might not seem significant, but the new Riverview Village sign announces the neighborhood's presence and gives it a unique identity, paying tribute to the diversity of neighborhoods throughout Norfolk. Thank you, Mr. Mayor, Council Members, and Mr. Manager for an opportunity to present tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Did we really only give you one day to present it? Um, yesterday around 10, and then... Great job. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, Winter. <laughs> Winter's so proud. <laughs> but yeah, we'll, 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 a couple of things. We want to show off the interns and, and, and what Nora and, and her folks are, are doing. But also, any, any one of these things by itself is kind of a fun story, but when you look at them uh, as a group, that's yeah, pretty neat things going on relative to placement. All right, quickly, if, uh, Kim, if you don't mind, because Justin, we're going to make it, we're going to make it. Um, the Attics Theater. Um, uh, and the mayor may have some comments yeah. here as well. But. Yeah, I'm very brief. Um, yeah. Mr. Manager, uh, next year, 2019, we'll, uh, we'll celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Attics. Uh, and we are going to stand up a commission um, to identify, plan events uh, to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Attic Performing Arts Building. Um, the, Mr. Riddick is after uh, Reverend Dr. Joseph Green uh, retired. Mr. Riddick has taken up uh, planning <coughs> events around the, uh, the attics. Um, it was restored and renovated. Dr. Father Green spearheaded that private and public partnership many years ago. Um, the likes of Louis Armstrong and Cap Calloway, Ruth Brown and other legends have performed there. I do see Rob Cross here, and I see uh, Professor Anthony Stockard here from Norfolk State University. So we have uh, before you a resolution establishing uh, the, uh, the commission, as well as uh, identifying some persons that have agreed to serve. So, Mr. Manager, you may want to add more. Terrific. Well, really, um, you, you've, uh, the couple of things that, that um, uh, much like the model for the Navy Centennial, where we're putting that committee together, as the mayor said, uh, uh, you all approved $200,000 in the 19 budget to, to pay for what we're doing. Um, I think the mayor uh, gave you some of the folks that are in the room that are, that are leading this. And then with the group that you're going to um, uh, approve tonight, uh, Kim, if you can go to the next slide for me. 
Um, uh, I know that's hard to read, but this is we, we sort of threw a straw man after you all over the, the last few weeks, and then you all revised that and, and added to uh, to that group. So tonight, one of the items on your uh, agenda will be to uh, launch this group, and um, we're really excited for the uh, 100th anniversary. And also, Mr. Vander, I think it's may note that other persons who may be recommended certainly can be added. Um, so, Mr. Riddick, if you see. Uh, I know this is dear to your, to, to you, and if you see any persons that you... And you got a great start there. Okay. All right. Thank you, Mr. Rick. All right. Mayor, thank you. Um, uh, we're going to... Uh, Justin Schaefer is going to step up and do the um, green infrastructure plan. Justin is our uh, environmental engineer, and um, uh, this is an item that is going to come back to you or come to you all uh, for approval the green infrastructure plan at your July 10th meeting. So I wanted you to have a chance to hear um, a little bit about what that's going, what that is. So Justin, it's all yours. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Manager. Uh, Mr. Mayor, members of council, appreciate the opportunity to give you an update on the green infrastructure plan. Uh, along with other staff, I've uh, been working on this for about the past two years, along with our partners at Old Dominion University and our consultants at the Green Infrastructure Center out of Charlottesville. So uh, several years back, the city was fortunate to receive a grant from the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation to do some resiliency work after Hurricane Sandy. A good chunk of that grant was set aside for construction of living shorelines along the Lafayette River. Y'all heard some of that a few weeks back from June. And um, the remainder of the grant was to go towards several green infrastructure initiatives. So part of it went from Old Dominion University, worked on workshops and curriculums for our high schools to develop um, education activities that students and veterans could use to learn about green infrastructure. And the remainder was for the city to develop a green infrastructure plan. So as staff worked to develop this plan, we had a few sort of guiding principles that we wanted to make sure we um, took into account. And the first was to ensure that we had um, regular input from a diverse group of stakeholders. So um, to ensure that we decided to have the plan be vetted through the city's watershed management task force. The benefit being there that that group already brings together city staff on a regular basis from various environmental groups within the city, as well as our nonprofit partners in the environmental community and other educational partners in the community. Um, in addition to those uh, meetings every two to three months with our consultant, we also had uh, other separate meetings with various stakeholders, including ODU, the Naval Station Norfolk, and other large landowners in the city. And finally, to ensure that uh, the general public had an opportunity to, to participate in the planning process. Over the past two falls, we held a total of 10 public meetings at various venues around the city, which some of which were very well attended, and we got some great input from the public. Um, and in general, just accepted any input that uh, anybody provided along the way as well. Um, the second sort of principle was to ensure that our, our new plan was complementary and supportive of all the other plans that he has uh, recently passed. Uh, especially Plan Norfolk 2030. So early in the process in coordination with the planning department, it was recognized that a green infrastructure plan for the city would be a good fit as an appendix to Plan Norfolk 2030. It aligned in a lot of the action items in there. And so um, we have approached, the, we have presented to the planning commission and have their approval. So we hope um, next month that you all also approve to amend uh, the planning, the Plan Norfolk 2030 to add this. Uh, in addition, plans like the Resilience Strategy, Vision 2100, um, the Parks and Recreation Master Plan, we went out of our way to ensure that each of these were included in the Green Infrastructure Plan in various ways um, so they did not conflict, and uh, as well as programs for the public like Retain Your Rain, Keep Norfolk Beautiful, or Based Our Homes. So before I get into the plan itself, it's important to understand what green infrastructure is. And so generally speaking, green infrastructure refers to all of our nat the natural features in a community. So our trees, whether they're along our streets and our parks and folks' yards, um, or along our shorelines. So then along the shorelines themselves, all the marshes and wetlands along the tidal shorelines and our lakes and ponds, and then out in the water, the oyster reefs, mussels, and other um, marine habitats. More recently, however, green infrastructure has begun to be referred to also human-engineered structures that try to replicate uh, natural features. So things like stormwater ponds, kind of older technology, but even newer technology on a smaller scale, things like rain gardens, pervious pavers, or rain barrels that uh, are particularly important in a city like Norfolk where it's heavily developed and there's not a lot of space to put stormwater ponds. So we tried to incorporate both styles of green infrastructure into the plan. 
So, so what was the sort of the goal of the plan? We really wanted to look at preserving the green infrastructure we had left while also expanding it in any way that we could. Uh, we looked at um, trying to meet various goals, obviously with, with efforts like the Chesapeake Bay TMDL, the city has to meet, water quality is always a concern, but also our flooding, our coastal erosion, um, a lot of green infrastructure practices can help us with those. Uh, and then any other co-benefits, uh, you know, health, health of the community, aesthetics of the community, getting folks out into open spaces, um, and even just enjoyment of wildlife, uh, green infrastructure can help all of these things. So the plan will provide data, maps, and a variety of strategies that will help us uh, move forward our green infrastructure in the city. When you're developing a plan, obviously, you have to know what your baseline is. So just like we map our gray infrastructure on the left, all of our streets and pipes and houses, we also have to map our green infrastructure, so our existing tree canopy, um, how much grassy space we have that could potentially be planted, where our wetlands are, sort of thing. Um, so our consultants worked hard to develop a high-quality land cover data set um, using more recent data than some of our other data sets and uh, work from baseline from there. So the next few slides are going to give you uh, some of the maps and data that was generated as part of the, as part of the planning process. So currently, it was determined that the tree canopy in the city is about 26%. And really, the, the farthest we could get if we planted every soccer field, backyard, and the whole city would be about 36%. So that's not a reasonable goal. So we scaled that back, and we thought something reasonable might be around 30%, so trying to increase a few percent. And we, we said by 2040, because in order to reach that goal, we will have to more than double the number of trees that the city and the, our community partners are currently planting. So it is a substantial increase in effort. Um, lots of different locations for the placement of trees were identified, um, be it bus stops, bike lanes, shorelines, et cetera. Let me give you some more um, ideas on that. The, the picture on the left shows you our roadway. So you can see a lot of our neighborhoods in green. Uh, those those tree, streets are well treed. But a lot of our business districts, our main arterials, no longer have any trees on them, either due to utilities or just um, wear and tear over time. So restoring tree canopy in these locations may better connect the city, provide for a better bike ride, say, in our bike lanes, um, just in general make it a more enjoyable experience moving around the city. Um, yes? As private citizens install trees, like our neighbors were putting um, three or four trees out last week, is that in any way beneficial to, or is there a way to incent private citizens to help with that 30% by 2040? We, we certainly hope so. Now, tracking what the private citizens do is a little hard. We can track what trees we give away at, a, at, at adoption type events. But, um, but in general, we do want to incentivize them if we can, and we've been trying to find better options for them. So say folks are scared of big pine trees and oak trees, so we try to find small fruit trees that they're maybe less scared of that they're willing to put in their front yard. Because, you know, like the urn, they get points for this or points for that. So, so urn's going away. Okay. Um, uh, but Keith Marfa's Beautiful has a big, uh, they give away trees once or twice a year. So, okay. yeah. And actually, we talked about this at the um, uh, Climate Change Commission yesterday as well and goals for this. Um, you know, we don't have any ordinances about if somebody takes away or down a tree on the private property that they have to replace it. There's nothing. Yep. They could completely clear-cut their property. Right. And yeah. I'm not. their property. It is, but in other cities, that is, I mean, if it's in the Chesapeake Bay watershed, there are there are rules towards that. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't allowed to take trees down without replacement, but that's the only time that happens is if you're on the Chesapeake Bay. Yeah, right along the water, that 50 foot right. off. I mean, I get that part, but I mean, if you have, you know, if it's your, well, the other piece of that could also that be with buildings. It is her property, but it also is the Chesapeake Bay. So and she's got that Norfolk. protective, right? But she's it, got that. But you know, we try and protect Norfolk. That environmental issue, rather. That's it's just something we need to probably start talking about, thinking about. Or we could also with builders. I mean, not necessarily making them put trees, but if they do, maybe there's some way to incent them to add. You build a house, zoning. you add a tree, because sometimes they have to take them down for fences. It's in the new zoning code. New so zoning code. It, it is yeah. okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, we we worked up. Mr. Smeagol, is it possible for us to get color copies of these? They're so small on the slide. Oh sure, sure. It's hard Are to see. In? Are they in Dropbox again? But it's but it's like two of those on one slide. All right. Ours so yeah, we'll get your full we'll get your full set. Right. Yeah. With the full page. I'll get you a full draft of the plan later this okay. week. We're making a few more tweaks to the draft. Oh, okay. That'd be helpful. Yep. 
Um, so, so again, on the left, though, we want to make sure the canopy is well spread throughout the city as well. So some civic leagues, you can see divided out here are green, they're, they're well canopied, and others could use a bit more canopy. So when we're looking at where to utilize resources first, as far as tree planting or giveaway events, um, <coughs> might be opportunities there to focus on certain neighborhoods through our Keep Norfolk Beautiful type campaigns. So with a, with a city like Norfolk where we're surrounded by water, obviously the trees being the backbone of most green infrastructure plans, the shorelines here are equally important. And so um, unfortunately our shorelines don't stay where they currently are. They're going to be changing over time. And so we worked with the engineering and modeling departments at Old Dominion University to come up with a conservative estimate of where sea level rise may be. We picked the year 2040 because that's sort of a general time frame for vegetative type practice. The tree may live that long uh, in an urban setting. Um, or marsh may survive that long. So we, we came up with estimates and using that data we were able to um, determine where we believe wetlands will migrate inland or where they just may form. They're not currently there at all behind a, a bulkhead and they may be there within the next 20 years. So this gives us ideas of where existing infrastructure may be impacted, where a park trail may need to be modified, um, and where we should maybe plant other trees and, um, and, and construct wetlands, so where we should focus our projects. And lastly, I had, I had mentioned the um, sort of constructed side of green infrastructure, so the engineered side. Um, we've been, we, we often get questions, we started the Retaining Rain program with the Resilience Office a, a while back, and, and we often get questions from businesses and residents on what, what can I do on my property? So I, I know there's all these different options, but, but what would be most appropriate here? And we wanted to divide the city up into two zones because Based on where you are, it may be more appropriate to store the water, say, above ground or to let it infiltrate down into the ground. And based off elevation data and how impervious, how much hard, hardscape there are in certain areas of the city, and as well as some existing pipe capacity data we had, we divided the city into those infiltration and storage zones and then, and then also created some sub-priorities within those categories. And, and it'll be useful. It's already being implemented in some of our, um, our web apps that we use with the Resilience Office for them to, for somebody to be able to click on their property and say, all right, I'm in an infiltration zone, so a rain guard may work for me versus somebody close to the water who says, all right, I need to look at cisterns or rain barrels or green roofs, something that's going to keep the water above ground to store it so it doesn't get on the road quite as quickly. Again, helping us with our water quality goals as well as potentially helping us with some of our flooding issues uh, in, in some locations. So with all the data and maps created, we did establish five major goals three for land and two for water. Um, again, just the same type of things we were talking about before, how to, where to restore different natural habitats, where can we build the rain gardens, pervious pavers correctly, and also something I haven't touched on previously, but open space. We work with recreation and parks a lot on both the land side and the water side on making sure that everybody in the city has adequate access to a park or to a boat ramp, to a fishing. And we had identified some areas that um, folks could uh, where we could look for some opportunities for parks. As lands maybe become unusable for other purposes, we could look for open space opportunity there. Um, with under these goals, there's over 50 sub-objectives and strategies that will help us meet them. Ultimately, what we're trying to achieve with this is we want to increase the green infrastructure of the city to make Norfolk cleaner, cleaner healthier, and better connected for our residents. So, um, we, think, we think this plan having it in place will set us up well for grant funding through folks like National Fish and Wildlife, and uh, we look forward to implementing it. Take any questions. Okay. Any questions? All right, Mr. Yeah. Smeagol, then I believe uh, <coughs> Colin, you're next. So just thank you for doing this. And um, VML is um, getting ready. Uh, they're taking nominations for different awards. So these types of things we need to be looking at submitting. I think the deadline's in August, so right. please make sure you do that. Um, this kind of made me think of a few things. One, um, we're getting ready to do some infrastructure work on the corner of Shore Drive and Little Creek Road, mm -hmm. and there were some trees put in the medians there that are now going to get torn up as part of the infrastructure project. And I noticed when we bid out to contractors, they just tear them down. They don't pull the trees up and replant them. And I, I think there's opportunities to just shift those if it's in the right planting season to other places um, since we paid for them. Uh, but then when we do a contract, we need to look at those types of things. Um, and then also making sure we put trees back, you know, um, as part of that. <coughs> My big question is a policy that I think we need to start working on when school buildings are given back to the city. Okay. Um, 
a lot of these areas are open space and unfortunately we've had a history of selling these places to builders um, and other people and I think as we move forward and looking at um, open space and green space we need to maybe develop a policy as a city um, on protecting these areas um, and, and looking at ways to preserve them. I know a good one, the Ballantyne project was a good example of maintaining open and green space, um, but with this school system's possibility of closing additional buildings down the road, we need to look at, at that um, and what we can do to preserve the open space and planting trees in the areas where the buildings come down, even if we tear them down. Um, Coronado building is just sitting there, I think, vacant right now, and I don't know what's gonna happen with that, but that would be a great place for open green space um, in, in the community. Uh, it would greatly improve that whole corner uh, where it is. Andrew? Uh, just a couple things um, in your goals. Um, it would be great if you, uh, one of the goals would be uh, carbon reduction. Um, that's one of the focuses of the Mayor's Commission on Climate Change Mitigation, and it certainly melds really nicely with that. Um, uh, also, um, making sure that the program incorporates or communicates the stormwater credits that people can get, the, because if they are implementing some of these green infrastructure projects, as you mentioned, they can get a 30 or 60 or $120 credit off stormwater, and I think we need to continue to communicate and advertise that. And along those lines, are we going to be communicating with neighborhood development? Or are they going to be bringing this out to the civic <coughs> leagues? Because I think that's a really important piece. We, we did meet several times with neighborhood development um, throughout the process, and we, I, I believe what the strategy we'd like to take on it is to pilot in a few neighborhoods and look at them kind of as a neighborhood as a whole and what they can do with their green infrastructure and develop a process where <coughs> we can go from neighborhood to neighborhood with neighborhood development and find the community leaders and look for at least small projects to get them started on again, maybe focusing on some of the neighborhoods that have uh, more serious problems. So uh, similar to the uh, Retain Your Rain grants that we had with neighborhood development, are we gonna put this out to civic leagues and ask them to you know, raise their hand if they wanna participate? Because I think there will be civic leagues who very much want to do this. I think that would be our hope. Um, I'm already um, eyeing a couple grants that are coming up this fall that may allow us to open up some funds to do just that. And, and the last thing is, y'all are doing a great job. Uh, there was just a dialogue on my social media um, page this week um, regarding flooding, and some comments were made that we're, we are doing a lot with regards to green infrastructure, but people don't know about it. So again, communicate, communicate, communicate. Make sure it's easy to find it on our website. You know, you guys, it's, we're doing a lot of good things, and um, and how people can find out about it, it's, it's important. Yeah, I believe we were going to try by next month um, when the vote on this is to get up at least a kind of pilot uh, website up to show the maps off to the public and be able to get some of that information out is what we've been discussing. Yeah, I just to play off what Andrea says, it is, it really is, the, our citizens are eager for this. They're really hungry. I mean, when I know I was at a, a Civic League on Thursday and they really wanted <coughs> to be involved with the stormwater, adopt the drain. They were anxious to do it. I just hope that everybody can remember that everything we do in this city needs to be under this umbrella. I mean, we are, we all identify our number one problem is flooding. And if we don't start thinking about this every time we do something, whether it's a road, whether it's a, a schoolhouse, I mean, it just needs to be part of our mindset. And so I, I really just hope we blast the city with this. And, uh, civic leagues are great, but sadly, that's about 20 people. And so we've got to find another way to get the word out, because there are plenty of people that are not civically involved, but are anxious to do this. So, I mean, great work. I'm really excited that you're doing this. But I, I don't know. I just, it's almost like, you know how for a while we got you all, I mean, you're still doing it, that every time a project came up, we asked whether or not there was historical significance. Well, we should have that same thing about what are we thinking about for green um, infrastructure or all of it. Um, Tommy, I have a quick question. When you say canopy, are you actually talking about the canopy or are you talking about the tree? And the reason why I'm asking that is um, when we plant stick trees, it, I, I don't think we're getting the biggest bang for our buck. Um, the, it was a ginkgo trees that we were putting in medians. They, their leaves are like this big, and they and they stay right it's, on the tree. It's not for shade necessarily. They they 
Can you explain I, I, Yeah, so I just would like to know, why aren't we getting more trees with bigger canopies? So Absolutely, and so in our analysis, we looked at uh, various size trees, everything from 40, 60 foot wide oak trees down to small blueberry shrubs. So the different, different spots can benefit uh, different tree and shrub species. But um, the, it's the root system underground that's really important from sort of a flooding perspective. We're trying to get that, those roots open up more space in the soil so that water can infiltrate. But we, in our analysis, we looked at summertime imagery, so it was really looking at literally the whole canopy of every tree in the city. Okay. So we did try to um, capture it as closely as we could to what was realistic out there. But, but agreed, definitely um, utilizing some more of the decorative vertical trees. Maybe right. we, we try to really focus on native trees, which are, generally speaking, broad, uh, rounded shapes. Mr. Riddick, did you have something? No, uh, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Thank you, Mayor. The last two housekeeping things is uh, we were chatting sort of before the meeting started among ourselves about this, uh, the book uh, Evicted that uh, Dr. Whitley apparently brought up at the last meeting. So I want to give her a chance to uh, I just, comment on it. I was really it. thrilled that you all took that idea and ran with it. I know it sounds like a dreadfully boring book, but I promise you it, it really is very engaging because it's about individuals, both people that are evicted and people that are evicting, and you can see both sides of it. And uh, as you know, this gentleman uh, won the Pulitzer for this, and I think we're starting to see this. He really started the dialogue going on this, and now he's at, um, doing research, and we've seen that the Virginian pilot has started a series. I hope you all saw the article Sunday about this, and sadly, Virginia is, uh, has three of the top ten uh, cities that are um, most likely to evict, and so it's a, a policy that I think we have to again incorporate in everything we're thinking about because it affects community, it affects crime, it affects health and education. And um, so anyway, I'm excited. I hope you enjoy reading it. If not, um, <laughs> pass it on to somebody else. So, so Winter chased down enough copies for you all and all the members of your and Mr. Riddick's um, for uh, St. Paul's. So we're gonna, we'll get those. Yeah, so kudos to Suzanne Courier, because she's the one that got me on this, okay. and she gave it to everybody on NRHA. Oh, good. Yeah, for it. So we're becoming a city of readers. I love this. <laughs> and then lifelong learning. And then lastly, James handed me these a moment ago. You want to we'll pass them out? You want to explain what we're uh, yeah. passing out, James? Uh, just uh, as a follow-up to what you were talking about last week in terms of, you know, talking about Section 8 and how we uh, buy and renters. Uh, there's a conference in town uh, this week uh, on Section 8, and it's a regional conference talking about how we can do those. Um, it's going to be at ODU and uh, that's downtown. So just wanted to make sure you uh, knew that, uh, again, you take to heart what you're talking about in terms of uh, making sure folks have access. And so this is a whole conversation uh, regionally about the such uh, a housing for. So just wanted to make sure you were aware of it. All right. All right. So we're upstairs. That's it. Good.